There is growth happening right now that is going to change the world more times than you can imagine over the coming decade. And that stuff does not stop when recessions hit. Let us help you reach your peak in retirement. It's time for your Retirement Elevated. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the Retirement Elevated Podcast. I'm Walter Storholt. On today's episode, it's a special edition of the show. Recently, Scott, along with fellow financial advisor, held a great webinar talking about the state of the markets here at the beginning of 2022. Uh, We've seen some volatility, ups and downs, a lot of things happening in the news. And uh, Scott and company caught everybody up to date provided some perspective, what we should be thinking about as we enter into this you know, new year of investing, saving, and planning for our financial future. So we decided let's turn that into a podcast to share with our podcast audience. So sit back and enjoy, Scott. Go through some of the details. Uh, keep in mind, this is a webinar, so it did have some slides that accompanied some of what's talked about in the show. But don't worry, even though you will only have the audio, there's plenty of explanation around the graphics and the slides. You'll know what's happening, what's being talked about, and I think you'll garner a lot of great information from today's show. So my name is Scott Dugan. Uh, for, we've got quite a few people on here. Some people have met me. Some people are working with other advisors in the firm. And I'm lucky to be joined with Mr. Mike Sorrentino, who will, will be on here in a bit. And today, the state of the markets, I think, is very timely. Uh, we've had some volatility uh, in 2022, uh, and then Mike is one of the best at explaining things uh, that makes it easy, you know, complex issues easy to understand. The whole goal when we're going over this data is we want you to be at a dinner party, you know, the water cooler, uh, something like that. And if someone starts bringing up things about the market or finance, we want you to be armed with actual data not miss misconceptions hearsay. And so I always appreciate Mike coming on here. Uh, you know, I've known Mike for many, many years. And uh, like I say, he, he's got a gift you know, writing for us on a weekly basis, and uh, we'll have a good dialogue today. My voice is going in and out. So I told Mike, I said, you're going to carry the water today. Uh, I had to drink a couple of glasses of hot tea to get my voice where it is today. Uh, but the theme of this, you know, state of the markets 2022 is really setting realistic expectations. And I think we've got to do that uh, in light of what's going on, you know, the past year or two years have a very odd, very unique time. Uh, we want to make sure that we're heading into 2022 and the near future with the right frame of mind. And so a couple of the quotes that I wanted to talk about today uh, by a gentleman named Mr. Nick Murray. Uh, I've read Nick for years, and he's a wise gentleman. He's believing he's in, in his 80s. Uh, he's a great author. And one of the things to think about when you talk about volatility, especially what we've just experienced uh, in the past 30 days, it is the fact that long-term investment success is almost totally a function of how one emotionally handles declines in the equity market as opposed to how one's portfolio handles them. So it goes back to uh, when we talk about staying the course, not making emotional decisions. Uh, we want to make sure that we, we stay on course. And I thought this is a great quote uh, for that. And the next quote with Nick Murray, I think it really goes to the heart of planning, uh, is that all financial success comes from acting on a plan. We hear 
has talked about this, whether it's uh, Mr. Patrick Burst, Mr. O.J. Allen, uh, Tyler Moisen, myself, we talk about having a plan and making sure that we talk about uh, how we're going to react when certain things happen, because markets are going to move. They're going to go up and down. We're going to have good and bad times. We need to make sure we understand how we're going to emotionally react to those things. So a lot of financial failures come from reacting to the markets and neglecting the plan or abandoning the plan. And if you've been a client with us, and I see a lot of the names on here have been clients for quite a long time, uh, you know that the plan is important. That is the guide. We want to make sure we're staying between the guardrails of where you're comfortable. And we don't produce a financial plan necessarily. We do financial planning, meaning we need to navigate the things that come up in your life and the transitions you're going through and make sure that plan gives you the highest probability of success. So those are my two quotes for today. Uh, I'm going to let Mike take care of the heavy lifting of the data and dissecting the economy. Uh, but just a, a very quick, a lot of you have, have uh, read uh, Mike and listened to his State of the Unions before. Uh, but Mr. Mike Sorrentino, CFA, he is our chief investment officer of Elevated Capital Advisors. That's our firm that handles all the market investments for all of our clients. Uh, Chief Investment Officer, Institutional Investor, uh, has been on some very prestigious research uh, firms with Bernstein, Barclays. Uh, his credentials, he's highly sought after uh, on Fox Business, CNBC, you name it, he's been on there. Uh, MBA from the University of Chicago, BE from Vanderbilt, and he is a chartered financial analyst. So he's got a lot of, a lot of letters behind his name, but a very, very sharp individual. So Mike, thanks for getting on today, and we're looking forward to what you have put together for us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me here, Scott. And uh, yeah, you know, those quotes you put up earlier, I thought were pretty interesting. One, um, and we'll go, we'll start with the uh, last first. You know, when you think about having a plan, it's always funny because, Scott, my, everybody views wealth management to be kind of my world, right? Looking at the economy and stocks and bonds and all that other stuff. But ultimately, when, it, when you talk about getting to a financial goal, I really oversee about 20% of the whole thing. You know, it, it's really, and it's, it's, don't get me wrong. I, it's not like I'm trying to downplay what I do. It's, it's important, but it's a component in the bigger picture. It's a component of a plan. And yes, we have a plan when we manage money, but it also, you know, there's also more of a, a goals component to this. Really, what are you trying to do and how do you achieve it? It's not just what I do. It's annuities, it's insurance, it's all these other components you bring together. And that's, that's where, the, where I think the genius of this business lies. Um, and when we, in the first quote, when you talk about emotions, uh, you know, look, I, I'm going to talk a lot about that today. So get ready. We have a lot to cover and, uh, we, oh, there's a lot going on to, to, to say the least. So the agenda I'm going to talk about today. Now, if you've, if you've heard me talk in the past, you know, that I strongly believe that markets do not run on calendars. Okay. What I mean by that is that we didn't just wake up on January 1st of this year and, what drove the stock market last year no longer is going to drive the market this year, okay? Markets don't work like that. They're event-driven, meaning something has to happen for markets to adapt or, or to anticipate. Now, um, I always joke around that, that a year is nothing more than the time it takes an earth to, the earth to go around a big ball of gas. And that's true. It just so happens this year that a lot of stuff is happening, uh, coincidentally, at the beginning of the year. And that's what we need to talk about. What's going on in what I call the swamp. It's my most hated part of my job, talking about what's going on in D.C. 
the economy. We're going to talk about financial markets, some of the investment themes that we're looking at now uh, and where we see opportunities ahead and then our approach and how we're going to try to attach ourselves to those opportunities. Now, this is a great quote that I found. I, I think I may have even showed it uh, last year at our State of the Markets for 2021. Uh, it's from, a, from a, a Harvard University Kennedy School of Government uh, paper that I read many years ago. It said, new public policy ideas that promise to solve many of society's problems uh, are constantly emerging in governments. Unfortunately, studies show that more than half of these ideas failed during implementation. And if you watch DC as closely as I do, you're surprised that it's only half. Look, we've talked about this for many years. I always say there's a huge difference between politics and policy. Politics, we were inundated with leading into the election uh, in late 2020. Politics is what we constantly hear on the TV. Policy is something different. Policy takes a really long time to enact in our country. The red tape, the back and forth, the checks and balances, it slows the process down. And a lot of, it frustrates a lot of people. But truthfully, in many ways, it works probably better than any other government out there. It's designed to be slow. So when President Biden and his, excuse me, and his administration came out a little bit over a year ago and said, we want to do this, this, and that, we strongly, strongly believed that very little was going to get done. And it's not a knock on Biden or his administration. The same thing we, I mean, it's just, that's how it works. When a new administration comes in, it just takes a really long time to get things done. So we actually showed this exact table a little bit over a year ago, right after Georgia went Democrat, meaning that was when the quote unquote blue, blue wave was running through Congress and through DC. Okay. Because the Democrats on the D, uh, excuse me, the white house and both sides of Congress. Now, we called it a blue ripple. And the reason why we said that was because of the way the votes work in the Senate. And we said, based on the politics that the Biden administration was running on, everything on the right-hand side of that orange column was off the table. What was it going to happen? They didn't have the votes. You need 60 votes or two-thirds majority, or we call a supermajority in Congress to get any of that stuff on the right done. And they just didn't have the votes. Now, what was more likely was on the left-hand side. And we mentioned that there's a couple things that we'll almost certainly get through. Our two big ones were spending and political appointments, and those have happened, okay? Uh, you know, we, we, when we think about like tax increases, which I know was on the minds of a lot of investors, we were very counter consensus a year ago. We said, look, we thought that it was gonna be very difficult for any type of tax policy change to go through simply because of the state of the economy at the time and a number of moderate Democrats we felt would, would make life difficult for, uh, for the administration. Now, fast forward to today, and I'm not trying to do a victory lap, but we've been so far right. And uh, don't, to be clear, uh, we don't have any magic insight in what goes on in DC. I've always said never ever bet on the outcome of a, gov a government decision because you were taking uh, unquantifiable risk at times. But when I think about what really got done, it kind of is in this little area here, mostly spending and political appointments. Those were kind of layups on it. It wasn't that hard. When I look forward though, okay, because that's really what matters. Let's look forward. All right. In 10 months, just 10 months, we have midterm elections uh, in November. That creates, in my opinion, significant challenges for the Biden administration to do much more this year. I think even less is going to get done in 2022 than it did in 21. Uh, his Build Back Better plan, I think it's, I won't call it dead in the water, but it's going to be difficult to revive. 
Uh, generally speaking, you don't see taxes increase during election years for, I think, obvious reasons. We're all self-interested, so are politicians. They want to keep their jobs. I think that that type of a move is going to be a little uh, contentious for a lot of senators that, frankly, saw November of last year when Virginia flipped and Jersey almost flipped. I think a lot of these, uh, these, these Democrats that, that are worried about their jobs uh, are probably thinking twice about getting too aggressive uh, one way or the other. So I don't know. I could be wrong. If we do see tax increases, I still firmly believe they're going to be benign. Uh, they're not going to necessarily impact the economy all that much. We might see some big tech regulation, uh, but my guess is that's just going to be a lot of media around that. But uh, look, the Democratic Party doesn't want to bite the hand that feeds them too much. So again, I don't think much is going to get done this year. So when I think about what's going on in D.C., we had low expectations a year ago. My point here is going forward, we have even lower expectations today. Again, not a knock on the Democrats. I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the political environment is such that right now that it is designed to get very little done. Okay, And generally speaking, this would be viewed as a tailwind for the economy, more importantly, a tailwind for stocks, simply because markets tend to prefer gridlock in D.C., when you get gridlock in D.C., nothing gets done. When nothing gets done, that uncertainty falls dramatically and markets tend to re respond positively to those types of scenarios. So we'll just have to wait and see. Now, let's move on to the economy. And I'm going to add a couple of quotes along the way here. So this, and, and believe me, it was very difficult to pick my favorite quote from 2021. I mean, that's like Forrest ranking my kids and I, and I, love, I love both of them. But that being said, this one stood out from Jerome Powell, chair, uh, chairman of the, uh, of the Federal Reserve, when he said, this was in November. I think it's probably a good time to retire that word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. You know, and that may have been in December, actually. He's talking about the word transitory, okay? And that was the word that the Fed had been using for all year to, to talk about, to basically explain why they felt that inflation was going to be short-term and it was just due to supply chains. And it had nothing to do with the fact that they raised, that increased the money supply by 39% since pre-COVID, all right? That wasn't, the, that wasn't the cause of inflation. It was supply chain. And they were saying all year how they felt it wasn't going to have, wasn't going to, uh, wasn't going to persist. And then in, in December, they finally admitted, yeah, maybe we're behind the curve, okay? So where are we today? We're in a situation, and we're going to talk a lot about raising, rising interest rates. We're in a situation where the Fed is unwinding unprecedented money, monetary policy. They are trying to normalize their involvement in markets, what we call manipulation of markets. They are trying to get to a position where they can raise rates in a couple of weeks from now. And all of that is changes the game on investing going forward. So let's talk about what the, what, what's going on in the economy, because the volatility that we see in the beginning of this year, I do think will persist. But per the first quote we saw, we got to think about what that volatility really means. So we're going to try to sign some, some thinking around that. So I like to do first principles approaches when I come to investing. What that means is that if I want to figure out what's going to happen in financial markets, let's pick the stock market. Then I say, okay, what drives the stock market? Well, economic growth drives the stock market. Well, corporate profits do actually. Corporate profits drive the market over the long run. Well, what drives corporate profits? Well, economic growth. Okay, well, what drives economic growth? You break it down into the four components, the four buckets of GDP or gross domestic product, and you'll see that 87% Almost 88% of our economy is consumer spending and business spending. Okay. So, what that means is when you go out to a movie or dinner or you fly on an airplane to see your friends, whatever it might be, all of that 
drives the economy going forward. So if I want to figure out what's going to happen on the stock market, I have to first ask myself, what is my forecast for spending? So when I think about spending right now, when I think about the American consumer, we're in a situation that's never happened in the history of well, recorded data. Okay. When I think about spending, the ability to spend has never been better. Okay. If you want to go out and buy something and you have a decent credit score, you can do it and you can do it at super low interest rates. That means it's very affordable. And right now, when you look at the balance sheets, or if you look at the savings accounts of consumers, the blue line shows you right there that as of April of 2020, we saw so that red line there is just kind of the long-term kind of trend line. We saw a major, major shift away from the trend line to the tune of $2.4 trillion in excess savings sitting in American consumers' bank accounts. Now, that number is staggering. All right. Trillions. That's a number we used to use to measure the distance between stars. Now we're talking about it, it's, it's money in a bank account. Okay. What I mean here is that the American consumer is doing really well. Not everybody, but in aggregate, we're doing really well. We paid down a lot of our debts over the last two years. Yeah. We went out and spent money on Louis Vuitton bags and all that stuff you saw in the news, but we also paid down credit card bills. Okay. Now the government sent us a bunch of checks in the mail, and now we got a ton of cash sitting in the account. Now, is it, are there implications with the government sending the checks in the mail? Yeah, we'll get to that. But what I'm talking about is our power, our firepower to consume, to spend money is like nothing we've ever seen before. In fact, and, and to be clear, it's not just the 1%. It's not just the wealthy. Yeah, they got wealthier because they always do. But look at this. The bottom 50% of our country, okay, their household net worth grew 74% since pre-COVID. That is a Staggering number for less than two years. Staggering. And that's a good thing. Okay. Because yes, we're seeing inflation. And we'll get to that. Yes, not the world is imperfect, particularly for individuals at the lower end of the income uh, scale. But this is a big deal. This is a big deal for the economy, too. Furthermore, you've heard about the great resignation. Well, what that means is that people are quitting their jobs right now. You want to know why? Because they can. All right. A couple of years ago, for a very long time, the employers were the ones in charge. They called the shots. Today, the amount of job openings massively exceeds the amount of available workers. And this, this situation has given the power of employees to go and pretty much do whatever they want. If you've got skills, you can get hired, right? There are job wanted signs out on nearly every, I mean, it really any establishment right now is willing to hire people going from you know data engineers at Google all the way down to, to, to waiters and waitresses. So again, this is creating a lot of confidence in consumers. And again, the ability to go and find and make more money. But here's the problem. Okay. The problem, we always say you're winning the battle, but losing the war. Right now, inflation, as you can see, that purple line is beating wage growth. And when inflation is higher than wage growth, what that means is that you are losing purchasing, you as in the American consumer is losing purchasing power over, over time, okay? So right now, inflation is about 7.1% for 2021. Wages grew just under 5%. So that means your typical consumer is losing a couple percentage points every year to inflation. And that's not good. Now, you can protect yourself through investing, and we'll get to that, but this is a, this is a risk that consumers need to deal with and also investors need to deal with. And I would argue that inflation 
is actually a lot worse in other parts of um, of the economy. When I think about, let's say, retirees, your as a retiree, your basket of goods that you're spending money on, like healthcare, uh, things of that nature, that inflation rate's going up a lot higher than you know. I'm 45 years old. I've got a five year old and a three year old, both daughters. I spend a ton of money on Taylor Swift albums. Okay, most retirees probably aren't doing that. So my basket of goods looks very different than than let's say retirees. So when you think about inflation, this is something you need to talk to you about your financial advisor about because uh, it's different for everybody. But the point here is that if you don't protect yourself through investment, inflation is going to eat away at you slowly over time. But the good news is you can invest to protect against inflation, even when inflation is really high. On the right-hand side, that orange column, when inflation is a, a greater than 4%, what we, look, we call the real return, what I mean by a quote-unquote real return is you take the actual return of an asset class like the S&P 500 and you subtract away the, ra- the, the rate of inflation. So for example, if the S&P 500 delivered 10% one year and inflation's 6%, then your real return would be 4%. So over the past, uh, call it 40 something years, 45 years or so, as you can see, some of these asset classes have performed quite well. So my point here is that there are some asset classes that will allow you to protect against inflation. This is one of the main reasons for the last year and a half now that we have been very, very bullish on the stock market. Okay. Now, I know the Fed's been talking about inflation for call it the last six or eight months. We here at Elevated have been talking about inflation since June of 2020. That was the first time I gave a presentation on inflation. I said, look, this is coming and we got to get ready for it. And we got ready for it a long time ago. So if you're wondering what we're doing in your portfolios to protect against inflation, oh no, we've been doing this for a while now. Okay. And I just want to show you this data to give you an idea that some asset classes do well in inflationary environments and others do not. Ironically, gold is one of them. We'll talk about gold later, but gold is one of them that during inflationary times has actually not done as well as most people think. It did fine in the 70s, but there were other reasons for that. Gold as an inflation hedge doesn't work the way people think it does. And the reason is simple. Gold does nothing. It's a pet rock. It just sits there. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't generate revenue, cash flow. It doesn't have margins where it could pass along price increases to its customer. It doesn't pay dividends. It just sits there. The S&P 500, look, if I'm, um, I'm going to make up a company, if I'm Chipotle, okay, and the cost of my, you know, I don't know, avocados are rising, what do you think I do? I pass along the price increase to my customers, and most likely that lunch line, you know, isn't going to change all that much. I preserve my margins, I preserve my profitability, therefore, I'm a natural hedge against inflation. That's why you see stocks and parts of real estate, international stocks, do so well during times of rising inflation. So when I add it all up, the economy, that is, I look at the economy and I say, okay, the economy is expanding. The pace of that is slowing, okay? A year ago, if you remember correctly, I, I said a year ago that we are in a, uh, in a market that from a generational perspective, we'll probably never see again. That's how bullish we were. But we also said it's probably not going to last all that long either. And we're at that point now where, look, it looks good going forward. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't look like it did a year ago. And you know, Scott, you said it absolutely perfectly at the beginning of the presentation. You got to set realistic ex- expectations going forward. And if you have an expectation that the S&P 500 is going to print 30% every year going forward, I think you are in for a rude awakening. Okay. But here's the thing. It doesn't need to produce those types of returns for us to reach, achieve our financial goals. It doesn't need to produce 15% a year. Okay. I'd be happy this year and I'm making this up. I'd be happy with 7 or 8%. I don't know. 9%. 
we need to get back to a world of realistic returns. But my, my third point here is consumers can consume, even with inflation where it is, even with rising interest rates, okay? The firepower, the war chest that the American consumer has right now is like, is, we've never seen it before. And that's why I'm giving the economy a very strong B plus. I almost gave it an A minus, but I want to be conservative here and say things are great right now. The tailwinds are stronger than the headwinds, and they're going to last longer. At least that, that's what our analysis is telling us. So let's go ahead and move on to financial markets. This is one of my favorite uh, quotes, and no offense to the MBAs out there. I've got one myself. The secret of his success is that he never went to business school. Imagine all the lessons he never had to unlearn. I love that quote from Peter Lynch, one of the greatest investors of all time, for a simple reason. If, if you were taking a textbook approach to investing in an environment where we've never seen monetary and fiscal policy like this ever, in an environment, uh, well, at least since let me, World War II, if you're, you're in an environment where you're seeing things like cryptocurrencies and uh, take market share from things like gold and other types of assets, you're in a world where uh, evaluations are like nothing we've ever seen before in some asset classes. If you're using a textbook approach to that, then in my opinion, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight and it's not going to end well. So let's talk about what I mean. So here's a recap of 2021 very quickly. A couple of different asset classes and different returns. The S&P 500 won with almost 29% total return in 2021. The NASDAQ was not far behind it. All the way at the bottom are two more interesting asset classes. As I mentioned, gold is, you look, this is just more evidence. Last year, in 2021, we had the highest rate of inflation in over 40 years, okay? That is a staggering number. Gold, which some view as an inflation hedge, lost over 4%. That does not add up for an inflation hedge, okay? Let's try to, again, setting realistic expectations. Going forward, we must have the expectation that gold does not act like an inflation hedge. It just doesn't. More importantly... Uh, is the bond market, okay? That green line there. Everybody thinks that bonds always make money. Well, they don't, okay? Bonds did not have a good year last year. And as we've said for over a year now, we feel that the bond market is going to be a lot like death by a thousand cuts going forward. That's the reason why here we look at alternatives to bonds, for example, annuities and other types of products that can uh, navigate the challenges of a rising interest rate environment, I think a little bit more sophisticated than just blindly investing into the bond market. When I think about currencies and cryptocurrencies, we have to talk about crypto now and Bitcoin and all that fun stuff. There's a great quote from Stephen Colbert. Uh, he called uh, Bitcoin gold for nerds. And it's, it's funny because it's kind of true, right? It, gold and, and, and crypto really aren't that much different. They don't do anything. They just kind of sit there. They have value because people perceive it as having value. It's, it's like a Pokemon card. Okay. But if you look at the top 10 return, sorry, the return of top 10 cryptocurrencies in 2021, Wow. I mean, these numbers are staggering for the math geeks on the call here. The y-axis, the, the vertical axis, it's logarithmic. You have to do that because some of these coins like Shibu returned 57 million percent last year. In fact, Bitcoin, which is the largest, uh, by far the largest and most uh, heavily traded cryptocurrency, up 100%. You can't even see the bar. It's there on the far left, BTC. Because relative to the other cryptocurrencies, it barely returned anything. Okay, so this is a crazy environment. It got a lot of people really excited. But remember what we're dealing with here. 
Um, this is the average drawdown in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, the two largest and most popular cryptocurrencies. Okay, You've got your average drawdown. Average for Ethereum is 42%. That means that any point from your peak price, you could watch almost half of your investment get eviscerated in a matter of days. Okay, there have been a couple of times where both Bitcoin and Ethereum both dropped over 80%. Okay, so look, you're getting paid to take on this risk and this volatility. Don't get me wrong, but this is a ride that most people cannot handle, which is again why we recommend, we strongly urge those that are interested in crypto to only invest in what you're comfortable watching go to zero. Okay, now I don't think it's going to go to zero. There's too much money backing these things, there's too many smart people involved in building out the ecosystem around crypto. But if you come in with that mindset, knowing that you could watch everything go to zero, you will keep yourself uh, probably uh, from losing too much sleep at night because the volatility in these things is like nothing that I've seen before in my professional career. So when I think about financial markets, a couple of things to very, I want to be very clear about. <clears throat> yes, I think that the economy is slowing, uh, but I think we are a long ways away from it falling apart. Bull markets, there's no calendar on a bull market, okay? Bull markets don't expire. They can go for a really long time, okay? We saw that after the financial crisis. I'd argue that had we never seen COVID, we'd probably still be in that same bull market. Safe investments, though, do not appear to be getting safer, okay? Do not think that rising interest rates in a couple of weeks is going to somehow turn bank CDs into the you know, panacea they, they used to be you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago. And when I talk about the training wheels are coming off, what I mean by that is the Fed is leaving the market. And that's a subject we're about to talk a little bit more about. So there's a great quote from a sci-fi author. His name is Brandon Sanderson. No, I don't read sci-fi, but I know a lot of people follow his work very closely. <laughs> Expectations are like fine pottery. The harder you hold them, the more likely they are to crack. Okay. Again, listen, to Scott, set realistic expectations going forward. Because if you don't, you're going to get upset and you're going you're to lose the forest from the trees. Now, I always show this chart when I present for a reason. It's to reset and level set our, expect, our, our, our thinking going forward. When we invest here, you notice that we don't talk a lot about Facebook or Apple or you know, whatever other stock that's hot in the day, you know, Tesla. All right. We like to talk about asset classes and how much we want to position ourselves to various asset classes. The reason why is that over the long run, asset allocation, how much you put into stocks, bonds, real estates, whatever it might be, that drives over 93% of your long-term return. Okay, Meaning it's like, real, like in real estate, location, location, location. That's what matters in terms of driving the value of your house. Same thing here. Security selection, that's a fancy way of saying stock picking. Stock picking does add, okay? It does add value over time as long as you do it the right way. But my point here is mathematically, it is almost impossible to do really well picking stocks unless you've got the asset allocation uh, set as well. So the overwhelming majority of our time here, getting you to your financial goals is focusing on that asset allocation. And when I think about where we are invested and where we are in the cycle, because that drives where we, what asset classes we want to invest in, we are very health, very much in an expansion phase right now. A year ago, that red, that red, red oval was just slightly to the left. It was between phase two and phase three. <laughs> now we're squarely in phase three. But like I said earlier, bull markets can go for a long time. Economic expansions can go for a really, really long time. And in these environments, you tend to see uh, equities, 
uh, do better than bonds and cash. And that's what we've seen so far. Note the commodities have done really well. However, uh, we are very careful about how we invest in commodities specifically because, especially in rising uh, inflationary times, commodities uh, are a bit of a mixed bag. So uh, while we think commodities offer some opportunities, the first time I've seen since before the financial crisis, and we've been, you know, we've been uh, invested in them for over a year now, uh, it's a very minor percentage of our overall allocation because we want to control that risk. So that being said, I do think we're going to be in an economic expansion phase for quite some time. Now, the big, you know, one of the big elephants in the room right now still remains is inflation. You know, is it going to be like we saw pre-COVID, right, where we saw inflation sub 2% for over a decade? Or are we going to go back to the 1970s where, you know, bell bottoms and that awful disco music and, and double-digit inflation reigns supreme? You know, the way I see it, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Now, the, the media isn't talking too much about it, but if you look under the covers, if you look below it, the headline number of 7.1% inflation in 2021, you'll see something that was very interesting that was happening in November and December, and that's inflation was decelerating. Okay, On a month-by-month -month basis, we started to see inflation decelerate. Yes, it was rising, but it was rising at a lower, a smaller pace. What that tells me is that that is an environment where we want to be, uh, where we got to be cognizant of the fact that inflation may have already peaked. Don't hold me to this because I don't do predictions like this, but gun to the back of my head, I think there's a very high probability that inflation peaked in December of last year. If it didn't, it's probably peaking now or in the next couple months. If that happens, then all the focus is going to shift to rising interest rates. Okay. Now, before I, before I jump on that, I want to be very clear about inflation. In inflationary times where inflation is high but not scary high like the 70s, stocks tend to do really well in these times because, as I mentioned earlier, you can pass along price increases to your customers. Uh, now, that lasts for a while, and then it kind of falls apart. But when it comes to rising interest rates, I think when the lot, a lot of the volatility that we've seen so far this year, the, the majority of it has been a pricing into the market of expectations that rates are going to start rising very soon. And does it, from a fundamental perspective, make sense? No, absolutely not. And I'll get into that. From a, an emotional stance, does it make sense to me? No, but it's happening anyway. Okay. And that's really what's going on here. There's been a lot of an emotional reaction to rising interest rates. Because if you think about why does the Fed want to raise interest rates? All right. Well, first and foremost, they should have done this a year ago. All right. They totally dropped the ball. Now, is, are they going to risk a recession trying to catch up? Maybe. Okay. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But if you think about interest rates, the reason why they're so important is that as interest rates rise, that means interest payments, when you buy stuff, interest payments are going to go up, meaning it becomes less affordable to buy stuff. When things become less affordable, that means there's less consumer spending. Less consumer spending means slower economic growth. That's why interest rates are so important. So uh, there's a misnomer, though, that once we start raising interest rates, that we're going to somehow fall in a recession shortly thereafter. And that's just not how it works. The overwhelming majority of the time that interest rates are rising, the overwhelming majority of the time, stocks do well because the Fed only raises interest rates when the economy is strong. So if the economy is strong and they're raising interest rates because they feel the economy can handle it, that means that companies are making money and people are getting raises and people are spending money. They're going on buying stuff. All of this is really good for economic activity. And as you can see, 
If you go back over the last 40 years, the date of the first hike from the Federal Reserve, that means the Fed had been cutting rates for some reason. And once they started raising rates again, okay, there's been eight times where the Fed has started raising interest rates. Look on the right-hand side of this chart, bottom right-hand side, 100% of the time, 12 months after the first rate hike, 100% of the time, the S&P 500 was up by an average of almost 11%. That is a staggering number. And that is a very good sign going forward that this rate hike cycle, I'm not saying it's going to be exactly like the others, but I do think there's a probability that it's going to be pretty strong. That being said, look at the second column from the left. Three months after the first rate hike, it's a coin toss. 50% of the time, the market's up. 50% of the index, rather. The index is down. Okay? So what I'm saying here is that in the short term, you have emotions. You have people doing crazy things in markets, trading around the volatility, all the stuff that's going on right now. And the way I look at that is that trying to trade through this is way too hard. Trying to time this stuff is impossible to do it consistently. Then you got to think about paying taxes. Then you got to try to get back in at the right time. That, that means you got to get lucky twice. And when I think about my job here, keeping everybody towards their financial goals, this is too, this is too risky. It's not, worth the, it's not worth the effort. Now, six months out, it doesn't become as hard. 75% of the time, the market's up, but there's still some risk in there. And here's the thing. If you're a long-term investor, why do you want to trade through this? Okay, it, it's just adding unnecessary risk and tax implications. I don't want to say close your eyes or bury your head in the sand. What I'm saying is if you focus on the fundamentals and the fundamentals are telling you that a year from now, a year and a half from now, things are going to look really strong, then you are taking on a lot less risk by ignoring this volatility. Or you know what? If you've got cash for some reason, taking advantage of the fear and panic of others. But when I think about going forward and I look at the fundamentals, which we just talked about, all right, there is no other alternative to stocks right now. Okay. It's a great inflation hedge. The economy is growing. Consumer spending is strong. Consumers are stronger than they've ever been before. When I see these fundamentals uh, tailwinds, I look at this and say, 12 months from now, I feel pretty good. Or I'm making that up 18 months from now. It doesn't matter. My point here is that the volatility we're seeing right now has nothing to do with the fundamentals, in my opinion. It has to do with the fact that um, some expectations around certain stocks are getting deflated. That's fine. We tend to not own a lot of that. All right. Now, there's always some that we own because you want to add some risk in your portfolio, but we're not really levered too much to those types of stocks. So when I think about going forward, I'm really bullish. I'm really bullish. I'm excited. All right. And I, I'm not worried about rising interest rates. In my opinion, the best, absolute best possible outcome for our economy and the United States are higher interest rates a year from now. Okay. Much higher. We got to get out of this zero interest rate environment. The Fed put crutches on the economy using monetary policy and they left those crutches on way too long. All right. We got to get them off. Now, are we going to be a little wobbly? Yeah. But you know what? The, that's what happens if you take crutches off. You get your legs get stronger over time for a reason. And if you think this volatility is new, or if we haven't been here before, or how many times I've heard pundits on TV say, you know what, this time just feels a little different. Okay. Here is what you as an equity investor had to endure since pre-financial crisis, since the beginning of 2008, all these little dips, all these little dips over the last 12 years, you have had to endure along the way. But if you did it, if you just dealt with the pain along the way, 
$10,000 investment before the financial crisis would be worth $43,000 at the end of last year. Think about that. That is a staggering return, staggering, quadrupling your money and adding in two of the worst recessions our country has ever seen. That is the price you have to pay to be an equity investor. But the returns, in my opinion, and our opinion of our staff here is that it's worth it. So managing expectations going forward, and I'll wrap up. One, we want to set realistic expectations going forward. Number one, stocks don't normally rise 30% a year. That's just the way it works, okay? So if we're up 5% this year or 15 or whatever it is, don't feel disappointed. We don't want another 30% a year, 30% gain in the S&P 500 this year. That's not how the issue works. If it is, we're going to have a really long discussion next year about getting defensive. Earnings growth should fall, but not fall apart. That's just how it works. The law of large numbers. Earnings growth can't grow the way they do in perpetuity. Third point, we're learning to live with COVID. I think this is an important point. I want to be very clear. I'm talking from a data perspective. If you look at things, let's say like TSA checkpoint data, people traveling on airplanes, it dropped 99%, 99% in April of 2020. Today, it's pretty much back to where it was February 2020 or January 2020. Okay. So that's what I mean by we're learning to live with COVID. The risk and the fear is out there, but we're still living our lives. And that matters for consumer spending. The U.S. needs higher interest rates. And remember, 0.5. I don't watch the news really ever, but the media is not going to report good things going forward. They don't want COVID to end. They don't want rising interest rate to be good for the economy. Okay. My best advice to you is stop watching those financial news networks unless I'm on them. Okay. Because I'm not going to steer you wrong, but I can't say that for the other guests. Our plan going forward has been one that's not just a light switch. We didn't just start doing this on January 2nd this year. We've been doing this for many months now. We're broadening our diversification. We're using new technologies for speed to be able to find new asset classes and invest in them quicker. We're straying from the herd. What I mean by that is looking for new investment opportunities, hedge strategies, things of that nature to hopefully dampen the ride over time, particularly as rising interest rates um, uh, take hold. We love to target the fear and panic of others. All right. That's not meant to be cliche. That really means that when we see stocks go on sale for no reason whatsoever, we're going to try our best when we're, if we're not fully invested, we're going to take opportunities to put cash to work where we see appropriate. And as I mentioned all the time, I'm always out there. Um, the team's always out here looking for recession resistant growth. Okay. When the co when the crisis happened in last year, or excuse me, two years ago in March and April, 2020, all right, I'll tell you for sh with absolute certainty, the brilliant scientists outside of Boston didn't stop curing cancer. They didn't go home. What we were seeing out in Silicon Valley, the artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, cloud computing, cybersecurity, I can go on and on and on. That didn't stop either. There is growth happening right now that is going to change the world more times than you can imagine over the coming decade. And that stuff does not stop when recessions hit. And as an investor, I love to attach ourselves and you, the client and the investors to these themes going forward, because they have multi-year legs in them, not multi-months. So with that, I'm going to pass it back over to Scott. Thank you so much for your time. I know it was a lot at once, but there's just a lot going on right now. Well, thank you, Mike. want to reflect back on one of the points that you made is that, you know, this time it feels different. And I always caution people, if you're talking to someone or you're, you're drinking your cup of coffee in the morning and say, you know, this is, we always talk about, you know, 
we, we'll get through things, but ah, this time it's different. Well, it, it's not. Uh, these are things that happen in the cycles of the economy. And if you think about in your lifetime, what you've been through economically from market gyrations, what you've been through in the last 20 years, especially the last 22 years, you know, we've seen a lot of ups and downs. Uh, but the trend is, if you can stand that volatility, you are rewarded for it. And so I caution you to think, if you find that phrase entering your mind, yes, but this time it's different, take a pause, probably talk to your advisor, and have that discussion, and make sure that we're not letting you know, emotion take over, and let's make sure that we're making you know, rational logic, fact-based decision. And, and Mike, I appreciate all the data you went through today. I think it's important uh, for people to understand that data. And we had some great questions and a few misconceptions about when you were talking about some of the data and then you produced that data. Uh, an example of you know, the, the savings, you talk about, well, does that all go to the 1%? You clearly illustrated that the vast majority of expansion of prosperity uh, was in regular lower to middle class folks. And so it, it's good to have those, that re reality injected uh, because that is our job is to keep you focused, to keep you aligned with your plan and your goals and not let the distractions of life, distractions of the media take you off course and give you grief and heartburn. Uh, we, we don't want that. For sure. So, Mike, I do appreciate all of the, the information that you went over with today. My pleasure. If there's anything uh, that we spoke about today uh, that you need to talk to your advisor about, feel free to reach out to the office, uh, get a time set up to have a quick phone call or an in office meeting. We're happy to discuss that and how it's relevant to your situation. So, again, thank you for your time today uh, on this snowy day in the Midwest or wherever you uh, dialed in from. Uh, look for additional information, as always, uh, from our investment team, uh, Mike and his team, our internal team, to help you continue to navigate uh, the tumultuous waters of, of the market. Uh, well, like I said, let's, let's stay focused, keep your plan up to date, and things will be great. So, again, thanks for all your time today, and we'll talk to you very soon. Investment advisory services offered through Elevated Capital Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.